about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land of imagination. Next stop, the Twilight Twilight. November 15, 1842. Baby, baby. Does that ring a bell? Bell? On this day in Oklahoma Cherokee Territory, 20 plus black classifiers decided to escape from bondage. Oh, yes, yes. I said escape from their Cherokee Native American slave masters. Masters. Five civilized tribes of the United States, baby, baby. Civilized to who? Why only five tribes? Tribes. What did those five tribes do to shake off savage status? Oh yes, I smell the stench of non-justice off up in here. I smell the residue of the usual suspects off up in here. The United States is a members only club. In this club, there is only one race. Race. The secret recipe is anti-blackness, dipped in a pitiful stew of colonialism and slavery. Supreme beings picking winners and losers. Uncivilized decisions being made by five compromised tribes. United States history, baby, baby. Baby. The destination is always the same. Same. We're headed for the solar system of less confusion. Confusion. The coordinates set. Set for 1842 Cherokee Nation Slave Revolt. Revolt. that for a moment. Well, yes, and see, it started with one of the first treaties was, was the New York Treaty about, about 1516 that came in. That was one of the first treaties. But in every one of those treaties that they set up with the Indians, they put an inclusion in there saying this, that if you were to cooperate with us and be able to help us maintain the slavery system we set up in this country, you know, and we will reward you and compensate you. We'll give you, fr we'll give you clothing, we'll give <coughs> you food, we'll give you weapons, you know, and we'll, and, we'll, and we'll even call you civilized if you help us maintain slavery. Every treaty contained a clause to help Indians to s shut down black folk. Slavery could never have existed in this country and been maintained without the full participation of the American tribes. Of the American tribes. It was built back in time in the early 1800s and became the first brick home in the Cherokee Nation. Today, the Chief Van House is a state historic site and a perfect place to learn more about the Cherokee Nation during the 180th anniversary of the Trail of Tears. Good day, Atlanta's Paul Milliken is live in Chatsworth this morning. And Paul, there's a lot to explore there. Wow. Yeah, good morning to you guys. This place is really fascinating, and I've been waiting a long time to check it out. I'm glad I'm finally here. And I was just telling Blaze behind the camera, I'm sure we've driven by this house hundreds of times while we're storm chasing up in Chatsworth. And it's this big, beautiful brick home. But from the outside, you really can't tell exactly what it is or why it's so significant. And it really is significant to Georgia history. So that's why we're here today and hanging out with Irina, who's the interpretive ranger. Great to 
see you. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Paul. Good morning. It is so great to be here. So let's start off with a brief description of what is the Chief Van House? What is this place? Well, the Van House is home to James Van, who in the 1800s was the wealthiest landowner on the Cherokee Nation. Mm -hmm. He had the largest plantation, the most amount of land, and the biggest, most grand house. Himself, he was half Scottish, half Cherokee, mm -hmm. um, and he built a fantastic empire right here in what is today Chatsworth, Georgia. And again, a lot of people driving by will see this big, beautiful brick home and think, wait a minute, that was owned by someone in the Cherokee Nation. It's not what we think of from the history books, but by that time, by the 1800s, things were changing, right? The Western culture was being assimilated. Is that correct? Absolutely. And the Cherokee were doing a fantastic job assimilating into European culture. They were businessmen. They were blacksmiths. They had their own newspaper. Um, they had the first school. Uh, wow. The first European-style school was right here at the Van House, mm -hmm. um, ran by Moravian missionaries. Wow. And by the way, the man that we're standing underneath right now, that's James Van's son, Joseph, who also ended up owning the this house after his father. We're standing in the dining room, which looks beautifully set right now. What's weird about the dining room, though, I walked in and the first thing I thought was, where's the kitchen? There is no cookhouse here because, of course, you would have been cooking over open fire, which, if you were cooking inside the house, would increase your risk of house fire exponentially, huh. and you would not want to burn down your fantastic house. Right. Uh, the cookhouse was just outside where we are. It was um, to the east of the house. Okay. It's no longer standing today. The original is not, mm -hmm. um, uh, but they would have brought the food in from the cookhouse to set it here on the table for the really bands. Interesting. You'll also notice at home, if it looks a little bit dark in here, it's because there's no power. It's an old house, right? All right, let's go across the hall into the parlor and talk about that room. This was a really important room. Explain to me why, Irina. Well, there's no office within this house. So if uh, dignitaries were visiting or if the vans were, uh, had business partners, had to have a meeting, they would have brought them here mm -hmm. into the parlor. And the parlor is one of the grandest, most colorful rooms in the whole house. Um, and spotlight in this room is our 12-foot mantle yeah. that features all the colors that you will see throughout the house. And it reaches, like I said, to the top of our 12-foot ceiling. So. Yeah. And it's hand-carved and hand-painted. And really quickly, before we move over to Kim Hatcher, anytime someone comes to the Chief Van House, they get a guided tour, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're proud to offer each and every person who walks through yeah. the door a guided personal tour of the house. I love that. Well, not only is this the 180. 180th anniversary of the Trail of Tears, which makes it a great time to come visit. It's a great time because of a promotion that the state park system is doing. Kim, good to see you. How are you? Hi, good morning. So talk about what this promotion is right now. Well, we're really excited. In January, we have a Bring a Friend for Free promotion at all the state historic sites. So Sundays through Thursdays till the end of January, you can come to any Georgia state historic site. And one person gets in free. And, um, you know, you could come both to the Chief Van House, but mm -hmm. you could also go to New Echota, Cherokee Capital. Right. On the same day, um, we've got Etowah Indian Mounds, Dahlonega Gold Museum, Roosevelt's Little White House in Warm mm -hmm. Springs. Um, all of them have different schedules, so you would check georgiastateparks.org for the hours. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, Kim. There is so much history here in Georgia. And, guys, we were talking before we came on air with the uh, rangers here saying, it's funny how many people will walk into a place like this and say, you know, I've lived in Georgia my whole life, mm -hmm. and I never knew this existed. Mm -hmm. And you two are both long Georgia residents. It's easy to take this kind of yeah. stuff for yeah. granted, but when you start exploring, we have some fascinating hidden treasures here for sure. Hey, and I love really? that new promotion. I can't wait to see where you're going to take me, your friend, yeah. to all these different parks because you get to take me for free. So <laughs> it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Bring a friend, not a frenemy. But big difference. Friend, oh, not okay. frenemy. Well, you and Katie have a good time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We will. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Paul. We will. The Chief Van House is located at 82 Highway 225 North in Chatsworth. It's open Thursday days through Sundays from 9 to 5. Admission is $6.50 for adults, $6 for seniors, and $5.50 for kids. 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 That's why they started calling them civilized rock, because they began to say, you quit hunting in the woods and running wild and, and get yourself some land and get yourself some slaves. So, so Indians became slave hunters, slave traders, and, uh, and, 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 and in the final analysis, all civilized tribes, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians, they all fought with the South to maintain slavery. Maintain slavery. Maintain slavery. During the 18th and 19th centuries, many aspects of American life were adopted by some Cherokees who viewed assimilation as the best survival tactic against American expansion. 
One such adoption was the practice of chattel slavery. In this Cherokee Almanac, we look back on an uncomfortable part of Cherokee history, the Cherokee Slave Revolt. Slavery in the, in the U.S. and in the Cherokee Nation was uh, not practiced by most, but it's still part of all our history. It's something that none of us are proud of, and, and you know, it's a little-known fact that the Indian nations participated in, in this, but it is important that we know that part of history. By the early 19th century, most Cherokee hunting grounds had been invaded by or ceded to white settlers. The United States was actively enforcing a civilization policy toward Native Americans designed to erode traditional Cherokee social structures. As some Cherokees assimilated to Eurocentric views of agriculture for profit, some also began to implement the so-called civilized practice of chattel slavery. By 1835, nearly 1,600 people were enslaved by Cherokees. In the Cherokee Nation, it was actually 8% of the people that owned slaves, and 50% of those slaves were owned by three different owners, the main one being Joe Van. Rich Joe, like his father, was a very shrewd merchant, and um, he became the wealthiest man in the Cherokee Nation. Joseph Van, or Rich Joe Van as he was known, was forced from his home in Georgia in 1837, one year before Cherokee removal. Van traveled from the old Cherokee Nation by steamboat on the Arkansas River, finally settling in Indian Territory near Weber's Falls. When he landed here, he had two steamboats, two wives, 150 slaves, and the fastest quarter horse in the world. He and Chief Ross's brother grew cotton crops, and they put the cotton on steamboats and took it back, uh, back east to sell it. Once established in Indian Territory, Joseph Van's business operations continued with relatively few obstacles until one night. At 4 a.m. on November 15, 1842, a faction of people enslaved by Rich Joe Van barricaded the doors to the Van home, trapping those inside. The group took guns, ammunition, food, mules, and horses, including Rich Joe Van's prized racehorse. The plan was to go to Mexico where slavery was illegal. Uh, they then robbed a local store to get more supplies and uh, approximately 25 slaves took off and headed towards the Creek Nation. In the Creek Nation, more enslaved people joined the revolt, raising the group's total number to more than 35. As the group continued southwest, they were pursued by a Cherokee and Creek search party. Eventually, the two groups collided near the southern border of the Creek Nation along the Canadian River. The escaping slaves uh, had a, a battle by the Canadian River where they disbanded the spot and uh, forced the Cherokee and Creek Party to retreat. In doing so, they lost uh, 12 slaves that were captured and two were killed. Following the battle, those remaining continued on their path to Mexico when they encountered yet another obstacle two slave hunters who had captured eight escapees from the Choctaw Nation, five of which were children. And when they came across those slave hunters, they ended up killing them and freeing the Choctaw slaves, and they then joined the party and moved forward. At this time, the Cherokee National Council passed a resolution authorizing Captain John Drew to head an 87-man militia to seek out and capture those participating in the revolt. The militia caught up to the group north of the Red River, just seven miles from the southern border of Indian Territory. When they found them, they were uh, in poor shape. They didn't have enough supplies to get across that rugged country. After all the miles traveled and the conflicts endured, the escapees were captured and taken back to the Cherokee Nation. The group was escorted to Fort Gibson, where five of the rebels stood trial and were executed for the murder of the bounty hunters. The rest were returned to their Cherokee Creek and Choctaw owners. Those returned to Rich Joe Van were sent to work aboard his steamship, the Lucy Walker. In 1844, the ship exploded when Van drunkenly ordered the workers to overheat the boiler. Van was killed in the accident, along with most on board. 
Slavery in the Cherokee Nation continued until the Cherokee National Council passed two Emancipation Acts in 1863. The abolishment of slavery was then ensured forever in the Treaty of 1866, and Cherokee freedmen were awarded tribal citizenship. You learn from the mistakes in history, not to mention Cherokee history, black history, it's all a part of American history, so it's all our story. We all need to know these stories. And so therefore, and, and they got benefits from it. And that led to going back to the earlier question you asked me about, about reparations. And, and even after the Civil War ended, the Choctaw and Chickasaw were still holding about 12 or 15,000 slaves even after the Civil War ended. The United States government sent in troops saying, you got to get rid of this slavery and, and let, set black folk free. And they set up what's called the 1866 Indian Treaties with these five civilized tribes, which says that black people in this country must not only turn them loose, they must get benefits. They must get forms of reparations. Going back to your earlier question, you must, you must first of all, set them free. Two, you must give them an, an option. And this is for all black freedmen and all blacks who lived in the Indian territory and all black Indians. You must set them free, allow them to have membership in the tribe. You must give them, uh, make them, uh, let them have access to all the resources on the reservation. You must let them also be tax exempt. You must let them have free education. You must also let them be able to uh, uh, give them $150 uh, in cash, you must give them 160 acres of land, and in present-day time, those black Indians under the 1866 treaties should be getting, they could also hold gambling casinos. Now, this country has, has never carried out the full mandates, but yet we are still honoring it for Indians. Right now, all the benefits that Indians are getting in this country are getting it from the 1866 Indian Treaty because they took up arms against the United States in, 18, in the Civil War. They killed off, wiped out all wiped previous out treaties. All previous treaties. <laughs> It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Norris. It's a largely forgotten footnote of history that many wealthy Native Americans in the Deep South owned African slaves. Those slaves joined their masters on the Trail of Tears when the American Indians were pushed west into Oklahoma in the early 1800s. Well, the Cherokee Nation has sparked outrage for a decision to expel many of its African-American citizens who are descendants of these slaves. NPR's Alex Kellogg reports the issue could wind up in federal court. Every September, the Cherokee Nation celebrates its national holiday. The holiday marks the signing of their first constitution after the Trail of Tears. The main event is a big parade. It features traditional Cherokee music, colorful floats, and people singing and dancing in traditional garb. Tens of thousands of people descend on Tahlequah, Oklahoma, the heart of Cherokee Nation, each year. But this year, the holiday was marked by controversy and protests. A day before the parade, a different group of people gathered in the blazing sun. They joined hands and prayed. Everything that was wrong would be made right. In your name, Jesus, amen and amen. Amen, amen, amen. Many of those who gathered are descendants of Cherokee slaves. They're known as freedmen. But now they say they've been kicked out of the Cherokee Nation by people they say are no more Indian than they are. The majority of the folks, members of the tribe and the leadership, are persons who have lived lives of white privilege. They are people who have never been discriminated against in their lives. Um, the majority of the people, completely Caucasian-looking, blue-eyed blondes alike. Marilyn Van says the tribe's decision is nothing more than outright racism. She heads a group known as the Descendants of Freedmen. They never said we were lying. They never said that that evidence that is in the National Archives, that is in the libraries here, was false. But it's basically, we can do what we want to do. We have casinos. We can buy Washington, D.C. from the top on down. That's the that's mentality of the folks here. The Cherokee's highest court ruled in late August that the black freedmen could be stripped of their citizenship. Why? Because they can't prove they have Indian blood. The tribe first voted in favor of this effort in 2007. Cherokee leaders say it's not a matter of race, but a simple matter of narrowing the definition of Indian down to those people who can prove they have Indian blood. This is not a club. You can't just claim to be Cherokee and show up and, and be included. Kara Cohen Watts is a vocal member of the Cherokee's tribal council. The Cherokee Nation is the largest of three federally recognized Cherokee tribes. It boasts more than 300,000 members. Like many Indian nations, 
it fiercely defends its right to self-governance. This is absolutely something that we have to defend. And the Cherokee people overwhelmingly voted in the Constitution that we want to remain an Indian tribe made up of Indians. Watts notes that the freedmen will be allowed to regain their citizenship if they can simply prove they are part Indian. If anyone cares that much about the issue, if they come and take time to, to meet with us and hang out, there are over 1,500 Cherokee, or there's approximately 1,500 Cherokee citizens that are Indian by blood and also descended from the Freedmen Rolls. The Rolls Watts is referring to are better known as the Dawes Rolls. The Dawes Rolls were lists of Indian citizens created by the U.S. government in the early 1900s. The Dawes Rolls included thousands of blacks and whites who had lived with Indian tribes such as the Cherokee for generations. Historically, these non-Indians were recognized as Cherokee citizens. And that's why some view the tribe's recent decision as unjust. Now, I have to say frankly that when you start making a blood argument for membership in an organization, you are dealing with race whether you want to or not. Daniel Littlefield is a historian at the University of Arkansas who's written books on this subject. He says there's another problem with the nation's decision. Many black freedmen actually have Indian blood. But the problem, he says, is that blacks, even those who were part Indian, were simply labeled as black on the Dawes Rolls. But those Indians mixed with white were labeled as Indian. That's why Littlefield thinks it's unfair for the freedmen to be singled out. There were many Cherokees in the Cherokee Nation and on the Cherokee by blood roll who had very little blood quantum. If you think that one 1,024th uh, Cherokee blood makes you a Cherokee, then that to me is one of the most blatant forms of racism. Whether it's racism or not, the Cherokee Nation's decision puts it at odds with the federal government. The Department of Housing and Urban Development has already suspended more than $37 million in funding to the Cherokee. The tribe depends on that money to provide basic services. The Justice Department said last week that a key upcoming election for tribal chief will not be recognized by the federal government. Voting is scheduled for later this month. The Bureau of Indian Affairs declined an interview request, but it warned the Cherokee Nation last week that the freedmen's citizenship rights cannot be revoked. The Bureau pointed to an 1866 treaty the Cherokee signed with the U.S. government after the end of the Civil War. It granted freedmen equal rights as citizens, rights that include access to health clinics, scholarships, and jobs reserved for Indians. Alex Kellogg, NPR News, Washington. News, Washington. Now, every year you, in, in the White House, we get about 567 white Indian chiefs, which in history they call $5 Indians because 90% of the people call themselves Indians nowadays are not, are not really Indians. Those are whites passing as Indians because they paid $5 to the Dawes Commission to get their name on the Dawes Roll so they can get all these advantages. But every year they get invited to the White House. And every year they got an approximately $3.5 billion every year, even that Obama's been in office. They got money into the Federal Indian Bureau. Now, see, if you were to talk about reparations, black folks have been getting all this money all these years, too. But they got shut out because the Indians in 1938, they sent, to, they sent a letter to the, to the Department of Bureau of Indian Affairs saying, how do we shut black folk down to make sure they never get any reparations? And that, that, that letter floated around in, in, the, in the federal government from about 1938 to about 1941. Then it went to the secretary for the Department of Interior. And the Department of Interior looked and says, aha, said, how do I come up with a scheme to shut down blacks so they get no reparations in this country? He said, what you do, you Indians come up with a new concept called a quantum blood law, which says that black folk are not entitled to any of the benefits of the 1866 treaty yeah. in terms of reparations yeah. unless they can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they got one quarter Indian blood in them. Yeah. And we make Indian blood sacred like, like Jesus Christ's blood. And therefore, they've been shutting blacks out all these years. That's why they didn't get any reparations. To go back to your earlier point. And the last point on reparations, you asked me earlier about a blueprint. This country's always given reparations to all groups except black folk, even though black folk were the ones who built the country. They built the bridges, they picked the cotton, they built the highways, they built the government buildings. They were the backbone of this nation. But now, so in, in, the, in the Marshall Plan, we gave billions of dollars to, uh, to, to, the, to, the, to Germans after World War II. We got under, under what's called a point uh, four program. We, we gave reparations to, to Japan, Japan, Japanese. We gave reparations to American Indians. We gave reparations to everybody but black folk. Yet black folk are locked into the bottom of a vertical order and a descending order of wealth, owning, and poverty, I mean, and, and control of resources, and nobody wants to address the issue. 
The Cherokee Nation is acknowledging that it made a mistake in not extending citizenship rights to freedmen and their descendants until 2017, something its principal chief says should have been done 156 years ago under the Treaty of 1866. Kennedy Sepulveda, who reports on Native Affairs, joins us now with more on the long history that has culminated with an apology from Chuck Hoskin Jr. Kennedy. That's right, Rich. And nearly 12,000 freedmen descendants have enrolled in the Cherokee Nation in the last five years. But just this month, the Cherokee National History Museum in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, unveiled a new exhibit that honors freedmen and shares their story. We have to recognize that there were times that we imposed trauma on others. Chuck Hoskin Jr., Principal Chief of the Cherokee Nation, says the tribe is facing its history by embracing the spirit of equality. And I think any nation is a stronger nation if they tell the whole of their story, the tragedy, the triumph, and the chapters that are dark and difficult. And I hope people come here and, first of all, understand that that happened. But I also hope they come away with some hope that we're in a new era in which, yes, we're recognizing that history, but we're also working towards collective healing. The new exhibit details slavery and emancipation on the Cherokee Reservation, details of the Treaty of 1866, the vote that relinquished Cherokee freedmen's citizenship, and the fight to reestablish those rights. The most compelling part of this exhibit is the stories that were submitted by the Cherokee freedmen community that are a large-scale installation of those community voices that tell the story that have not been told for more than a century. My mother worked extremely hard for the rights of her, her children, her family, all of us. And so I must say, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that we've moved forward and I am proud to say I am Cherokee. The Cherokee Nation, along with the Chickasaw, Choctaw, Seminole, and Muscogee Creek Nations, signed treaties in 1866 that abolished slavery in the tribes and granted full citizenship to freedmen. Article 9 of the Treaty of 1866, signed by the Cherokee Nation, states all freedmen and their descendants shall have all rights of native Cherokees. However, in 2007, the Cherokee people voted to define citizenship as by blood, which cost 2,800 freedmen their tribal citizenship. Cherokee Nation reversed that decision in 2017, and the Cherokee Nation Supreme Court ruled to remove by blood from the Constitution in 2021. We are going to hold the United States accountable for every part of every treaty that we have. We can't do it if we refuse to or deny the existence of provisions in uh, the treaties that say, for example, we must give freedmen and their descendants all the rights of native Cherokees. The Seminole Nation also kept the long-standing promise to the Seminole freedmen, but three of the five tribes did not keep their promise from their 1866 treaties. The Chickasaw Nation Senior Counsel Stephen Greetham sent a statement that reads, Few things are more sensitive than a tribe's right to determine its own citizenship. As to the five tribes, each of us have our own treaties and legal history. The citizenship status of freedmen under Chickasaw Nation treaties with the United States was long ago litigated, and the U.S. Supreme Court held in 1904 that our treaties and laws neither vested freedmen with citizenship nor obligated the nation to extend citizenship. The Supreme Court concluded that, quote, the Chickasaw freedmen are not members of that tribe within the meaning of the provisions of the agreement submitting the amended agreement to a vote of the male members of the tribe qualified to vote under tribal law. In 2021, Principal Chief of the Choctaw Nation Gary Batten sent an open letter expressing willingness to consider extending citizenship rights to Choctaw freedmen. The letter ended with, quote, today we reach out to the Choctaw freedmen. We see you. We hear you. We look forward to meaningful conversation regarding our shared past. We're responding to something that we thought was sincere. And uh, we're hoping that it was not just an empty gesture. But one must also reflect what was going on a year ago. A year ago, there was um, revisiting of the Nahasta Bill, which is Native American Housing Bill, that was being reviewed by Congressman Waters, became aware of the plight of freedmen uh, in Indian Territory. And so, wait a minute now, 
uh, then maybe we should put a clause in there. Nothing ever came from that open letter. Principal Chief Batten sent a statement that reads in part, tribal membership for freedmen is a sensitive and complex topic. Over the past year, our leadership has respectfully taken time to consider this issue, and we have asked for feedback. We proactively received messages from very few people, so we also asked about the topic in our annual membership survey. The response has been overwhelmingly clear. While our members have sympathy for people whose ancestors were enslaved, they also understand the importance of having clear definitions of who is eligible for membership in our tribe. They were bothered by Indian men and enslaved women. But of course, the policy was that, oh, we follow the, the, we follow the mother, the status of the mother. Muskogee Creek Nation also expressed openness to consider expanding their citizenship rights to freedmen in 2021. However, those rights never came. Principal Chief David Hills sent a statement that reads in part, and as a nation that has endured policies intended to exterminate us because we are Creek Indians by blood, the idea of granting citizenship to any non-Creek person is one that engenders deep, conflicting emotions. Quite frankly, our citizens stand on both sides of this issue, but the solution to this is not another colonial intervention by the United States. Unfortunately, I think a sentiment that maybe comes um, maybe from the tribal sector that there's this alien people trying to force themselves in our community, but we were already there. We arrived in the 1830s with them. The Cherokee Nation is hosting a reception to celebrate the opening of the new exhibit. The celebration is planned for 2 p.m. this Saturday on the northwest lawn of the Cherokee National History Museum. History Museum. A Cherokee citizen is making history this week. Marilyn Van was appointed to the tribe's Environmental Protection Commission. She's the first descendant of Cherokee freedmen or slaves once owned by tribal members to hold a key leadership role in the tribe. News on Six's Amelia McGavro has more. I think it gives people hope. Marilyn Van says she got chills when the Cherokee Nation Council recently chose her to serve on its Environmental Protection Commission. What emotions were going through you? Well, I was very pleased that my talents, my abilities, uh, that they were going to be recognized and used in my nation. Van says she actually comes from a poor family, but that didn't stop her from graduating first in her class at the University of Oklahoma and becoming an engineer. I worked for ExxonMobil for about a couple of years, and then I worked for the federal government, retiring as an engineering team leader. Van says she's also a Freedman descendant and the president of Freedman Descendants of the Five Tribes Association. The Freedmen were former slaves owned by Cherokee citizens and later became citizens. But in 2006, the Cherokee Nation denied Freedmen were tribal citizens. Van was a litigant in two lawsuits against that action, which saw the tribe return citizenship to Freedmen. It's taken a long time to go from uh, being a litigant to being a commissioner on a tribal agency. Principal Chief Chuck Oskin Jr. says Van is the first Freedman descendant to have a Cherokee leadership role. Perfect for the really important position of overseeing what we do in terms of environmental protection. So I'm proud of her. She's a well-qualified trailblazer in that regard. Van says she hopes to pave the way for more Freedmen to follow her lead. I think people are pleased to see the Cherokee Nation is stepping up, stepping up. <laughs>
That's People Activity Radio. And I'm your host, I'm your host. John, John G. G. Horse. 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 Welcome. You have found your family in a peaceful place. PAR is a family-friendly information distribution program seeking, seeking to inform non-white people, in particular, black classifieds, and assisting and counter-racist codification. codification. PAR is a family-friendly information distribution program dedicated to creating less confusion for people subject to non-white in particular black classification. Less confusion with the ultimate goal of solving problems. Replace the system of racism white supremacy with a system of justice. Immediately. Immediately. The title of today's show is The Untold Horrors of the Cherokee Nation with an emphasis on the 1842 Cherokee Nation slave revolt. slave revolt. And before I get into the work, I'd like to acknowledge the John Henryism practitioners, the law-abiding, hard-working class, blue-collar, blue-collar, people subject to black classification who support and dig into their pockets, wallets, and purses and contribute to the show and i'd like to say thank you much appreciated and all proceeds will be used to keep the show a coming a coming understand me understand me john g horses cash app is dollar sign capital j o h n capital h o r s e Feel free to donate if you feel this program is constructive and worth your time. Feel free to donate if you feel the program is constructive and worth your time. And without further ado, we're going to get straight into the work. Into the work. The Cherokee Slave Revolt of 1842. Article written by Art T. Burton, copyright 1996, Art T. Burton. Black slavery in America usually evokes images of the antebellum South, but few realize that members of the five civilized tribes, the Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaws, Creeks, and Seminoles in Indian Territory, today's Oklahoma, also had slaves. Like their counterparts in the South, Indian slaveholders feared slave revolts. Those fears came true in 1842 when slaves in Cherokee Nation made a daring dash for freedom. For freedom. For freedom. In the 1830s and the 1840s, initially at the insistence of President Andrew Jackson, the United States government forcibly removed the five compromised, also known as civilized tribes, from their homes in Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida to Indian Territory west of the Mississippi River. Their removal opened the lands to white settlers and planters. And planters. And planters. When they moved, all the tribes took with them established systems of slavery. Mixed blood Indians, the offspring of white traders and frontiersmen who married Indian women, were the principal slaveholders in tribes, largely because their fathers had taught them the economics of slavery. Those mixed blood Indians remained tribal members and became important middlemen between white settlers and Indian communities. Many Cherokees depended on black slaves as a bridge to white society. Full blood Indian slave owners relied on the blacks as English interpreters and translators. And translators. By 1860, the Cherokees had 4,600 slaves, the Choctaws, 2,344, the Creeks, 1,532, the Chickasaws, 975, and the Seminoles, 500. Some Indian slave owners were as harsh and cruel as any white slave master. Indians were often hired to catch runaway slaves. In fact, slave catching was a lucrative way of life for some Indians, especially the Chickasaws. The Chickasaws. 
Seminoles' attitudes towards slavery were different than those of other tribes. Never practicing chattel slavery, they took in fugitive slaves and claimed them as their own property to protect the blacks from the slave catchers. In return, the blacks, who lived in separate villages in Seminole country, gave livestock and crop tributes to the Indians. The blacks and Seminoles also formed a military alliance, with the blacks serving the Indians as warriors and strategists. In some instances, the blacks would intermarry into the Seminole community. Seminole community. All of the tribes except the Seminoles had slave codes. Even after their removal to Indian territory, the Seminoles allowed their slaves to carry weapons and own horses and other property until a treaty in 1845 provided their relocation to the western area of the Creek Nation, the Seminoles lived in the Cherokee country around Fort Gibson, Indian Territory. Before that, Cherokee and Creek slaveholders complained about the influence of Seminole slaves on their own slave populations. I bet they did. I bet they did. The blacks locked their masters and owners in the houses and cabins while they slept. Then they burglarized a store, stealing guns, horses, mules, ammunition, food, and supplies. At daylight, the group, which included men, women, and children, headed toward Mexico, where slavery was illegal. Was illegal. Was illegal. The Cherokee slaves at the Arkansas port of Weaver's Falls, not far from Fort Gibson, would have had ample opportunity to observe Seminole slaves. Most of the Cherokee slaves farmed cotton and other crops, but some worked at the landing where steamboats docked and where Rich Joseph Van operated a public ferry. The Seminoles disembarked at Weaver's Falls after their journey from Florida, and the Cherokee slaves may have been impressed with the blacks dressed in Seminole fashion and carrying rifles and knives. The Black Seminoles settled in Illinois River Bottoms near Weaver's Falls, allowing the Cherokee slaves to socialize with them regularly. With them regularly. About 4 a.m., November 15, 1842, more than 25 slaves, most from Rich Jovan's plantation at Weaver's Falls, rendezvoused at a prearranged location near the port town. The blacks locked their masters and overseers in their houses and cabins while they slept. Then they burglarized the store of a man named Bigelow, stealing guns, horses, mules, ammunition, food, and supplies. At daylight, the group, which included men, women, and children, headed toward Mexico, where slavery was illegal and many runaway slaves sought refuge. When the fugitive slaves entered the Creek Nation southwest of Re Weber's Falls, Slaves from the plantations of wealthy creeks named Bruner and Marshall joined them, increasing the number of runaway to more than 35. When the Cherokees discovered that their slaves had departed, about 40 of them took guns and dogs and went in pursuit of the fugitives. Each slave reportedly had a horse or mule to ride, and they had taken some of Rich Jovan's blooded racehorses, so they were highly mobile. The Cherokees followed the slaves into the Creek Nation. There, a group of Creek Indians organized a search party and joined the Cherokees. Joined the Cherokees. Within a few days of the escape, the Indians caught up with the blacks about 10 miles beyond the Canadian River in the Choctaw Nation. The slaves found a depression in the prairie which provided a complete entrenchment for them and their horses, and they decided it would make an excellent place to fight. A pitch battle followed, with both sides suffering casualties. The blacks held the position for two days, but the Indians killed two of them and captured 12 others. The fight convinced Cherokee and Creeks to go home, get reinforcements before continuing the chase. The remaining fugitives kept moving toward the Red River. During their flight, the fugitives met James Edwards, a white man, and Billy Wilson, a Delaware Indian, about 15 miles from the battle site. Edwards and Wilson were fugitive slave hunters 
whom blacks in the South called patrollers or paddy rollers. They had with them eight blacks, one man, two women, and five children who had escaped in the Choctaw Nation. They had belonged to a man named Thompson who had married a Choctaw woman, making him a citizen of the Choctaw Nation. The fugitives had been headed west to join one of the Plains Indians tribes when a man named Chisholm spotted them and turned them over to Edwards Wilson and a Cherokee man for transport back to Choctaw authorities. Edwards and Wilson made good progress until they met the fugitive Cherokee and Creek slaves who killed them. The Choctaw blacks gladly joined the Cherokee band and they continued on their journey toward Mexico. Liberty of death, baby, baby. Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. The slave outbreak was reported to the Cherokee National Council at the Capitol in Tahlequah on November 17, 1842. Immediately, the council passed a resolution which Chief John Ross approved, authorizing Cherokee militia Captain John Drew to raise a company of 100 men to pursue, arrest, and deliver the blacks to Fort Gibson. The resolution also relieved the Cherokee Nation of any liability if the slaves resisted arrest and were killed. The Cherokee National Treasury would compensate Drew's militia and Drew was authorized to purchase ammunition and supplies provided that the expedition was not unnecessarily protracted and did not incur needless expenses. Expenses. Ross told Indian agent Pierce M. Butler about the expedition and asked him to inform the commander of Fort Gibson and the Creek and Choctaw chiefs. The commander at Fort Gibson loaned Drew 25 pounds of gunpowder for the militia. On November 21st, Drew left Weber's Falls with 87 well-armed men in his command. By November 26th, they had arrived at the site of the battle between the slaves and the Cherokees and Creeks. Picking up the runaways trail, Drew's command came upon the bodies of slave hunters Edwards and Wilson, who apparently had been dead for about four days. The militia found the trail again and two days later found the fugitives about seven miles north of the Red River, some 280 miles from Fort Gibson. Fort Gibson. The slaves offered no resistance. Starving, they surrendered immediately. Drew captured 31 slaves, the entire group except two who were away hunting. Drew's men returned the slaves to the Cherokee Nation with no problem, arriving at Weber's Falls by December 7. Drew reported to the Cherokee National Council on December 8th after an investigation Council members ordered five slaves to be held at Fort Gibson pending trial for the murders of Wilson and Edwards, then told Drew to deliver the remaining slaves to their owners. The Choctaw male slave was also turned over to Fort Gibson authorities. Drew kept two Choctaw slave women and five children in custody until Cherokees could ascertain their disposition from the Choctaw Nation. Rich Joseph Van took most of the black rebels out of the Cherokee Nation and put them to work on a steamboat, which worked the Arkansas, Mississippi, and Ohio rivers. The Cherokees thought the influence of foreign free blacks had caused the slave insurrection. On December 2nd, they passed an act in regard to free Negroes, directing that all free blacks, except those whom Cherokees had freed, leave the Cherokee Nation by January 1st, 1843, or as soon after as possible. Those who lingered or refused would be expelled. The act targeted the free black Seminoles living in the Cherokee Nation. Cherokee attitudes against free black Seminoles continued. In 1849, tired of harassment from slave catchers, some of the free black Seminoles under Black Chief John Horse fled Indian territory. They joined Seminole Chief Wildcat and his followers 
and successfully reached Mexico. By 1851, nearly 300 blacks had tried to escape from Indian territory, most headed to Mexico or Kansas, in the Northern Cherokee Nation, in what would later become Washington County, Oklahoma, an Underground Railroad trail led into Kansas. None of the escapees, however, equaled the scope of violence of the Cherokee Slave Revolt of 1842. Yes, indeed. Liberty or death. Baby, baby. Baby, baby. And we here on People Activity Radio, not reading this history for a flex. Flex. We're just highlighting history that is not highlighted for whatever reason. And yes, there is an agenda on old John G's behalf. Because one of the things that old John G gets real irritated by is those people who are subject to non-white, in particular, black classification and descend from foundational United States black classifieds, descendants of United States slaves walk around with an ignorant pride, an ignorant culture, an ignorant behavior of dismissing resistance, dismissing the efforts of non-white people subject to black classification, not only to liberate themselves, dismissing the fact that liberation meant the federal government of the United States were going to be on your bumper. The slave catchers of states were going to be on your bumper. State militias was going to be on your bumpers. And the five compromised civilized tribes was going to be on your bumper if you thought that you were human. If you thought that you were bigger than captivity. If you thought that your mistreatment had to stop, if you had the nerve to act on your liberty, you had to be willing to die. That's not a flex. That's not a flex. That's history. That's history. Now that's either true or it's not true. And I hope, and I hope I have contributed to less confusion. And always remember, keep learning. Keep learning. And stay codified. And stay codified.